0: Amen. If you're, ki- if you're able, would you kindly remain standing to honor God's word. This morning it comes to us from Jeremiah chapter 3 verses 11 through 14. Then the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself less guilty than false Judah. Go and proclaim these words to the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, says the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you have rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among strangers under every green tree and have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O faithless children, says the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, from one, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning. Good morning to those who are worshiping with us online. We're grateful for your presence. We are continuing a sermon series we started last week on the book of Jeremiah. It's important for us to remember as we go along in this series that um, God had divided the nation of Israel into two, into two kingdoms north and south. And after that, north was Israel, south was Judah. After that, the, both countries went into this very, very dark spiral. Things went from bad to worse. It was the beginning of 208 bad years. According to the Bible, during those 208 years, the combined kingdoms had 38 different kings, and only five of them were good. The rest were described as evil. Not incompetent or bad, but evil. Now, the United States has had 46 presidents in a time just a little longer than Israel. I suspect we would come up, we could come up with our own personal list of those presidents <laughs> that we thought were good. I think we could come up with a list of those we thought were incompetent, but evil? Wait, don't answer that question. Let's just leave that there. Let's just say things are really bad. Really bad. Remember, Israel was to be God's special nation. Chosen by God to be a light to the other nations. They were charged with with being God's very own people. Now we have learned that they have turned away from God. They stopped caring for the poor and the widow. And they have blatantly begun to worship other gods. And during this time, God sent messengers. He sent his prophets to call the people to return home. Stop what you're doing. Come back to me to warn the people of their ways and to be the voice of God in the midst of their community. As we hear that call and that message this morning, let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of the thoughts of each of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In these verses that I read this morning, in in fact, I see this all throughout the third chapter, but in a real pointed way, in these verses, we, we discover three things. The first is we discover the charge. The charge. And this is verse 11. Then the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself less guilty than false Judah. Now remember, two kingdoms, the north, Judah, the south. Jeremiah is preaching to the south, Judah. And so this is a pretty stinging charge to say that faithless Israel is less guilty than you are, than false Judah. He reminds his listeners that the northern kingdom has already lost its way. It's already been judged by God. They had already been sent into exile. They had done all the things that Judah was doing, but God had already punished them. And you would think that would be an example. You would think that would be a warning to the people of Judah. They might Say, well, wait a minute, we ought to change our ways. We ought to be careful because Assyria came and took them away. And as part of God's judgment, they didn't listen. Maybe we ought to listen, but that's not what we see. In fact, they became even more emboldened in bad behavior and even more arrogant. Jeremiah says, faithless Israel is even actually better than you are. They can't seem to learn the most obvious lessons. And so Jeremiah is reminding them once again in his sermon in chapter 3 that these words are coming not from me, Jeremiah is saying, but from the Lord himself. In this chapter we see Jeremiah invoking some version of declares the Lord nine times in 18 verses. And once again we see that the main character is not Jeremiah. The main character of this book is not the prophet, but rather the main character is the word of the Lord. We see it all throughout Jeremiah. And And now for for us to understand what's at play here in this sermon, we need to be clear that it is spoken to a people who are understood to be living inside of a covenant. A covenant is bigger than a contract. It is more binding than a promise. God had said to his people, I will be your God, you will be my people There are promises that I will make that will hold us together. God makes all kinds of promises. I will be your God. I will care for you. I will look after you. You will be my people. We will be wed together. You'll live in a way that it will be mutually wonderful for the two parties. Covenant is such a strong, powerful word in the Old Testament. We see it all throughout. And this is spoken to a people who were understood to be inside and had agreed to this relationship. Who had wandered off. One party had wandered off. And in this sermon, God's saying, why did you leave? Don't you understand what we have, what we had? Why? 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 Things have gone so bad. We learn that the people of Judah have forgotten God's law. They've forgotten God's word, God's truth, morality. They've even forgotten just common decency. From a spiritual standpoint, they are utterly lost. And they began to worship other gods. There's a word we discover in the Old Testament about 40 times. It's called Asherah, it's actually a god. Um, She is primarily known as a Phoenician Canaanite goddess who was married to El. She was also the mother of Baal, um, who is another popular god. Now, our resident archaeological expert, Pastor Bruce, who knows a lot about archaeology, says, and I'll show you a picture, this is an Asherah idol or statue. And, And Bruce reports to me that they have uncovered so many of these, Archaeologists have uncovered so many of these that there could have been, probably was, one in every single home in Judah. Everyone was worshiping or had this idol in their home and they were bowing down to it and they were expecting things from it. Again, these were a covenant people. These were people who had been in a relationship with God where God said, don't do that, I'm your God. Let's not divide loyalties here. It's going to hurt me. It's going to hurt you. It it, it brings nothing to the equation. Do not do that. And yet in every home, perhaps, they said, we don't believe that. We're going to set up our own to hedge our bets for whatever reason. This is the charge. They were supposed to have an exclusive relationship with God. It's understandable why the language all throughout this chapter and so much of the prophets is language of marriage. It's the, it's the analogy that seems to make the most sense. I've told you before uh, the story about a man who was proposing to his girlfriend, proposing to be married, married, married. And he, he, he kneels down and he says to her, he says, "I, I need to tell you, I know that I'm, I'm not handsome like Jerome I'm not wealthy like Jerome. I I don't have a boat like Jerome has, but darling, I love you. And she looked at him and she said, I love you too, but tell me more about Jerome. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Now let's play that out a little bit. Perhaps they got married. What if she mentions Jerome a lot? What if there are pictures in the house of Jerome? (laughs) We could play this analogy out. That would be offensive. That would be hurtful. You can see why God is so upset. We read this. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? This is part of Jeremiah's sermon. Would not such a land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers. This is what God says. the people. This language is supposed to shock us. It's supposed to be offensive. God is hurt and upset. He's frustrated. He's furious. We had an understanding. Why are you doing this? Why are there pictures of Jerome everywhere? Why these Asherah statues and idols? Why are you depending on something that will bring you absolutely nothing? It'll hurt your soul. Now let's pause for a minute. Let's ask a question. Why? Why would they do this? Why would they have these idols that they worship? At first glance, I mean, it's easy to discount this and say these were uneducated or simple people. We might push them aside. We might say things like, well, I would never do that. I couldn't possibly do that. But what if there was a long season without rain and you were worried about how to feed your family? What if there was a drought? What if the wife was unable to conceive after long seasons and you were beginning to get very worried and anxious? And what if someone came along and said, this doesn't cost much, this will help. If you pay this money for this, it'll make it happen. We can see where it's tempting We can see where we might be pulled in. Trusting God is not always easy. Living inside of a covenant with God is not meant to be always easy. There could be seasons where I really need to trust in his promises. When I really need to rely on his good character and his good nature. It's not always easy. And he never said it would be. We may think that this is a distant thing by distant people that doesn't affect us. But how many of us say, Lord, I, I trust your promise. I trust you for my future. I trust that you will provide. But but you know, I just can't be generous right now because I need to take control of my future and I need to make sure that things are well in my hand. How many of us say, Lord, I, I, I trust that you have this country and its future in your hands. I, I do, I do trust that, but, but yet I'm so worried, I'm, I'm worried. And so we get tempted to listen to other voices. We, we're, we're tempted to, to look at the Asherah idol in our home, the, the computer, and buy into conspiracy theories that, or whatever. Sometimes it's hard, we get worried, we get scared. We need to read this chapter. We need to hear these words and ask ourselves, or speak to the Lord and say, Lord, expose my idols. Would you please expose them? Help me to get rid of them. Lord, help me to trust you. The charge is very direct and clear in this chapter. God comes and says, stop doing this. It's hurting me, it's hurting you, it's hurting the relationship. I suspect you might have one of these. Do you have one of these? (laughs) This thing does a terrible thing. I don't know if it does it to you, but this thing does a really rotten thing to me, this smartphone. It happened about, actually I can tell you exactly, it happened 39 minutes ago. (laughs) It happens every Sunday at the exact same time, right as we are about to walk into worship. Every Sunday morning, I get a notice that says, your screen time was up 5% last week. (laughs) And it tells me how much exactly I won't repeat what it says. That's not fair. Why does it come on Sunday morning as I'm walking into worship? I don't want to trivialize this. However, do we not bow down in our posture when we look at this? Do we not on some level depend on this? There's times when I wonder if God through his prophets is wanting to get my attention and come to me and say, what are you doing? Why are you spending so time, so much time with this and so little time with me? Why are you spending so much time with this when it's clearly dangerous. It's hurting our young people. It's hurting them. It's creating so much anxiety. And the prophet speaks to me and says, really, let's take a look at your screen time this past week. Let's compare it to your Bible time this past week. And then it hurts and it's direct This is the charge. But we also discover in this passage the character, the character of God. God says in verse 12, Return, faithless Israel, says the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, says the Lord. Isn't that remarkable? Did he not have every right to be angry? Every right. He held up his end of the bargain, the covenant. He levels the charge and then he says, but listen, you need to understand who I am. I am merciful. My nature, my character is mercy. This word merciful is the great Hebrew word chesed. It's a word that in many ways, it's untranslatable. Here it's translated as merciful, but we really don't have an English word for the Hebrew word chesed. And it's very important to know this because it's a word when God self-identifies himself to Moses in Exodus 34, he uses as self-identification this word twice. In 1535, Miles Coverdale was attempting to translate the Old Testament and he had to invent a word to translate this word. It appears 250 times in the Old Testament. So you had to look at the context in which the word was used and understand how the word is used. And then choose a word to translate it. And he came up with the word loving kindness. And it also has this connotation of loyalty. Why is this important? Because when we look at the book of Jeremiah... We have an attempt to remind us and teach us what God is like, what his character, and what are we learning? We learn that God says, I am chesed, loving kindness, mercy, loyal. God is loving, and we see this. He even loves the people who have turned away from him. He even loves Judah when she runs away. But we're also discovering that God is holy, and he calls them from their evil ways and calls them to turn around and repent. You see, God is both loving, loving kindness, and merciful, and loyal, but he's also holy. Sometimes people say, well, I believe in a God who's loving all the time. And, and that plays out in a God that accepts me just as I am. He accepts all my shortcomings and failures, like a loving grandparent who really doesn't get involved in the discipline. After all, God wants me to be happy. Well, they're not reading the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah you can see a loving god but we see how it looks we see the character of it some people swing toward the holiness of god and speak frequently about the need to get our lives in order and straightened out speak a lot about god's wrath and god's judgment and maybe there's a ring of truth in that but let's not walk far away from this word hesed He's loyal. He sticks with us, calls us to holiness, calls us back into a relationship. His nature is mercy. It's kind. It's loyal, loving kindness. This is who God says he is. I mean, it's dramatic, and we're going to see this as we journey through Jeremiah. God gets so angry at the behavior of the people. He's frustrated. He's at the end, and then we get these words. Do you not remember who I am? I'm kind. I stick with. I'm loving. If we're going to be in covenant with God, if we're going to be God's people, we need to be clear on that. We need to know, get up in the morning and go to bed at night and be reminded of God's hesed. his good, wonderful character, his holy nature. And then finally we discover the calling. Return, he says. Return, O faithless children, says the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city, two from a family. I will bring you to Zion. Rich Valota says this, the story of the Bible in four phrases repeated throughout its pages are, I love you, I am with you, don't be afraid, you can come home. God says, would you please come home? Come home. The biblical word for this is repent. Now, repentance is more than feeling sorry for your sins. Repentance is admitting that you were wrong and thinking that you could manage and order your own life. It's acknowledging, Lord, I can't do this. I can't manage my life on my own. I go stray. I go get lost. I end up buying Asherah idols. I end up spending my time doing this and this and this. I can't do this. Lord, help me follow you. It's admitting that we need to return to God and begin living under his authority and his guidance. You remember Martin Luther was so frustrated with the Catholic church and for good reason. He, they had become so corrupt. They had moved away from God and they were doing all kinds of terrible things. The church in the 1500s and Luther finally got so exasperated. He went to the cathedral at Wittenberg and he he nailed on the door ninety-five theses, ninety-five complaints against the church. You know what the very first thesis is? The very first, at the very top of that list, Luther said he said this: "All of life is repentance." Really? I thought all of life was supposed to be happy or joy filled, or all of life was supposed to be experienced. No. Luther said, that's it. You and I were created in our life to be people who say, Lord, I'm so, so sorry. Please help me return. Please help me follow you more closely. We do it when we wake up in the morning. We say, Lord, I'm so sorry. There's a good chance I did a whole lot wrong yesterday that I don't even remember, that I didn't even know I was doing. I'm sorry. We don't do it flippantly. When we go to bed at night, we say, Lord, where I have erred, where I have strayed, whatever I have done, would you please show me? Would you allow me to return home? And then we remember at that moment, we remember his hesed. We remember his good, kind character and that he receives us back. Luther says, this is the rhythm of our life. We wake up, we keep doing this. It keeps us humble and an appropriate posture before God. It means that I take responsibility It also means that I stop blaming other people. When I'm blaming other people, it's not a posture of repentance. It's a posture of arrogance. It's not a posture of humility. We need to remember that God is a safe harbor in the tempest. He's a shelter from the storm. When he says return home, he's saying, would you come back to safe harbor? You can come home, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, you can come home. Maria and her daughter, Christina, lived in a poor neighborhood on the outskirts of a Brazilian village. Maria's husband had died when Christina was an infant and she never remarried. Times were tough, but at last, Christina was old enough to get a job and old enough to help out. Christina spoke about going to the big city. She dreamed of trading her dusty neighborhood for the exciting avenues of city life, and just the thought of that horrified her mother, who knew exactly what Christina would have to do for a living, and that's why her heart broke. That's why she couldn't believe it when she awoke one morning to find her daughter's bed empty, knowing where her daughter was headed, she quickly threw some clothes in a bag, gathered up all her money, ran out of the house, and on her way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore and got one last thing. She got pictures, photos. She sat in the photograph booth, closed the curtain, spent all the time she could making pictures of herself. And with her purse full of, of a small black and w- white photos, she boarded the ne- next bus to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew that Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, a human being will do things that were before unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began her search. Bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place with a reputation for streetwalkers or prostitutes. She went to all of them, and at each place, she left her picture, her little black and white photo, taped to a bathroom mirror, tacked to a hotel bulletin board her phone booth, and on the back of each picture she wrote a note, and then her money ran out, the pictures ran out, and Maria went home. A few weeks later, young Christina descended the hotel stairs, her young face was tired, her dreams had become a nightmare, but as she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. And her eyes burned, her throat tightened. She walked across the room and she removed the small photo. Written on the back was a compelling invitation. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become It doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. Do you hear that call this morning? I pray that we as a church hear that call. Hear that invitation. Whatever you've done, Wherever you've gone, whatever you become, it doesn't matter. Come home. It's time to come home. Let us pray. Father, it is sometimes difficult to read these words of Jeremiah in his sermon, the words that you gave him and to understand that these words are for us, that your holiness calls us to a new way of living, to understand that we are the ones who get lost so fast and so quick. But help us to hear this invitation to receive your forgiveness, to return back to be the people that you've called us to be. We thank you for your loving kindness Grace that is shocking and abounding in steadfast love. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.